New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The family of caregivers of those who are cognitively impaired are our true unsung heroes. Often without respite nor compensation, they serve those who have Alzheimer's diagnosis and other forms of dementia. Alzheimer's can also have a component of early onset, but most diagnosis shows up as we get older. Research indicates that Americans are more afraid of getting Alzheimer's disease than they are of dying. And as our population ages, there's an ethical aspect to these cognitive illnesses that have been neglected in the United States. In this culture, with its emphasis on hypercognitive power and productivity, we can hopefully begin to acknowledge the equal moral status of people with physical and cognitive disabilities and not dismiss the consciousness and awareness of an individual with dementia as someone less significant than that of someone who is more lucid of mind. And we can better support those who support this growing population. Today, we'll be talking about how we may better meet the challenges of what our guest today, Dr. Stephen G. Post, calls deeply forgetful people. Dr. Stephen G. Post is among a handful of individuals awarded the National Distinguished Service Award from the National Alzheimer's Association. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. Post served as co-chair of the United Nations Population Fund Conference on Spirituality and Global Transformation, and he's the director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. He's the author of several books, including Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live Longer, Healthier, Happier Life with a Simple Act of Giving, and God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, and Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. 
Join us for the next hour as we explore the medical and ethical issues in Alzheimer's disease from diagnosis to the end stage with our guest, Dr. Stephen G. Post. I'm speaking with Stephen from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Stephen, welcome. Hello, Justine. It's so nice to see you again. Yes, it is. I'm so grateful that we're able to visit once more, and especially about this topic. But I want to go back to your experience with your own grandmother, uh, Grandmother Post, I think you call her, and, and your interest in this subject about those who are cognitively challenged and the question that arises for many of us, is grandma still there? So tell us about your experience with your own grandmother. Well, yeah, my grandma post passed away of what they then called senile dementia. The word Alzheimer's wasn't used particularly much at that time. And I would go to the nursing home. She had uh, lost her capacity uh, to swallow with ease. And so she needed a lot of assisted feeding. I would go there and I would sit with her. Now, oftentimes she couldn't say a word. Uh, she did not call me by name, which didn't matter at all to me because I would, as I gave her the applesauce or the bran or whatever it might be, I would look into her eyes and I would sense um, her loving presence. Every once in a while, uh, she would beam a smile. She definitely was uh, part of that sort of ritual intricacy of feeding. And uh, surprisingly and sporadically, she would uh, call out my name, which would absolutely shock me. And that's where uh, I developed a lot of my philosophy of deep forgetfulness that uh, she was more forgetful than most of us, but I was not willing to say that underneath that breakdown in communication or that silence, that she was gone, a husk, empty, absent, and so forth. But I was hearing that around me in the nursing home. You know, even very thoughtful, caring uh, nurses' aides and so forth might use that kind of language and uh, it, it bothered me because I just didn't think we could ever say that somebody was no longer there. Well, that takes me to a, a phrase that I grew up with and many of us grew up with. It, it's a phrase we've heard over and over again. And it's called, oh, it's mind over matter, mind over matter. And there is um, some scientific uh, conversations going on and research going on that is actually flipping the paradigm, putting mind at the top or consciousness at the top rather than matter at the base of everything. So uh, let's talk about that. What do we know about the different schools of thought of mind over matter and mind and brain in this research? What, what can you say about that? Well, there are many people in uh, neuroscience who will try to make the claim that mind is simply derived from matter, from brain, from tissue, from cells, and the like. Uh, I simply don't 
accept that. And about half of the very well-regarded philosophers of mine would agree with me. They don't think that something as different uh, as mind is from matter could somehow arise from the latter. Therefore, there's something to be said for this idea, which is ancient and goes back to all the great spiritual traditions of uh, mind before matter. Um, and I think that that makes sense. And in this context, uh, consciousness is an important word. My grandmother was perfectly conscious. She could respond quite well to certain smells. Uh, she could enjoy the fall leaves and their colors. Uh, she could enjoy certain music that was familiar to her. She could experience emotions. She had lots of consciousness. And, and, and what's bothered me a lot about Western moral philosophy is that we say, following people like Kant and others, that you really don't quite count under the principle of do no harm or beneficence unless your linear rationality is in place. That's the rationality of how we do things. You know, we got to get someplace in the course of the day. So how do we get from point A to point B to formulate plans and to operationalize them over chronological time? But there's symbolic rationality, which is always there with the deeply forgetful. They may not be able to do, but they know who they are because they can relate to symbols. Uh, I knew people uh, in Cleveland once upon a time, a fellow who worked in the in the steel mills, and he dressed country and western to the very end. You know, he clutched his cowboy hat, and he kind of knew that his identity, who he was, was wrapped up with that hat. Or when de Kooning, who had Alzheimer's for 14 years, when he would dip that paintbrush in the acrylic paint and go up to the easel, you know, um, he knew who he was. And and it's not that he could be particularly purposeful in, in the normal sense, but he was there in his symbolic rationality of, of who he is, which is more important than what we do, that was there. And I just want to say about de Kooning, uh, his paintings, even today, when he had, you know, Alzheimer's, which he was diagnosed with for many, many years, for over a decade, yes. his paintings sell for millions of dollars. You know that he, he, his expression of who he was continued on, and this, this uh, takes us to. Um, where where does memory so that there's a kind of what emotional memory or heart memory what what is memory and where does it reside memory is still very very controversial it is hotly debated there are whole different models of memory you know it is the case that that uh uh, the the brain can lay down certain kinds of habitual memories, but the memory of who we are, the narrative memory, the memory of the course of a lifetime uh, that is just there in a millisecond to be drawn up uh, as 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 needed, that memory is not easily explained in terms of of brain. And I cite. Quite a lot of science uh, in the chapter on is grandma still there, uh, 
suggesting uh, that, in fact, for some people, uh, not just people like William James and Henri Bergson a hundred years ago, but for people right now, good neuroscientists, it's more like, okay, you've got a computer on your desk, right? And your computer has a certain amount of memory within it. But it's the memory isn't all in the computer. A lot of the memory is now in the cloud, right? And 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 so you know this is the the ancient spiritual traditions of memory, and there is a literature in this area. The Hindu tradition, the uh, the certainly the Buddhist tradition of the uh, akashic memory. Somehow there's a a memory, a record in the in the one mind. To use one of Larry Dossie's terms, the one mind that we're all participating in, somehow that deeper form of memory is is there. And uh, it's not something that we can narrow down and, and, and put in some little part of a, of a brain cell or, or whatever. It doesn't work that way. And no one's been able to show that uh, this larger form of memory is containable in a brain. And I think some might describe this as some sort of quantum field of uh, intelligence that's reciprocal and dynamic and that we can tap into. That's what you're talking about in these uh, Akashic records. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Stephen Post, and he's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. And if you want to know more about his work, I encourage you to go to his website, Stephen G Post, P-O-S-T.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and we're talking about dignity for deeply forgetful people. This is his term he uses instead of people with dementia. Why do you use this deeply forgetful people rather than the term dementia? Well, that's a great question, and there's a backstory to it. So dementia, if you look at it structurally, it's very much like the word retardation. Retardation is not a word we typically use now. We talk about handicapped. We talk about differently abled. Dementia is a purely negative term. It's a decline from a former mental state. 
And what it does is it invites negative metaphors. A husk, empty, gone, absent, dead, missing, you know, and uh, she's not there anymore. And so it's it's very uh, divisive and it, it separates them from us. And the problem with that is that, of course, we fail to notice all the wonderful hints uh, that they give in very vivid ways, with paradoxical lucidity, with uh, purposeful expression. We, we, we decide that we're not really going to notice them for the continuing self-identity that is still there. And so I don't like the word dementia. I like deeply forgetful people. And, you know, we're all a little deeply forgetful. I, yeah, right. For I, sure. I <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a spectrum there. <laughs> and and you mentioned the phrase um, paradoxical uh, lucidity. What, what does that mean, Stephen? Well, it's different than terminal lucidity. Uh, which people study, uh, uh, these moments of lucidity at the very end of life. Paradoxical lucidity is now actually being used by the National Institutes of Health, and they're issuing requests for proposals on this topic. But people who have dementia, you know, long, long before they will pass away, uh, may in fact uh, be there, their chin is down, uh, they haven't conversed for weeks or even months, and then suddenly, sometimes stimulated by personalized music, sometimes stimulated by uh, someone's particular presence, uh, they'll come back into themselves. And indeed, uh, and this is widely reported by about 90% of caregivers, they will have moments when they actually seem to know who they are and can have conversations of a sort for a brief period of time. Now, you know, how you use language is important. So the book has a lot on that. You know, never ask someone, um, how are your kids? Could because you're putting them on the spot. They have to, you know, retrieve these these names. But you say, How's Lou? How's Jake? And they light up and they're enthusiastic. So so I think that paradoxical lucidity is very important. And now people are studying paradoxical lucidity because they think maybe that's how they can understand a little bit more about what's really going on neurologically with quote-unquote dementia. Well, I think you mentioned um, when when this happens, and be careful about your languaging, and one of the things I know that you emphasize in your book and in the workshops you help to design and participate in to help caregivers really work with these people, you encourage us as caregivers to enter their world rather than try to make them adhere to our world. It's kind of a, an exercise in improv, right? Please uh, tell us more yeah. about that. Well, improv and also appreciation for their subjective experience. You know, um, if you go back 30 years, people with dementia might be in a nursing home somewhere and a guy would be up at a blackboard and writing down the date 1969 and looking out at these individuals what's the year and of course most of them were drawing a blank who's the president and you know that was called reality therapy 
well, maybe it's okay in small doses very early on, but eventually you need to recognize their reality. And that is the dominant subjective reality. So Oliver Sacks, who I knew very well, wrote The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. <laughs> uh, he, he thinks she's a hat. That's okay. And many, many people have realized the importance of entering into that domain. So it's important. I was trying to find a place in your book, and I, I couldn't really recall it, but I remember you're um, talking about an instance where if the person you're working with or you're giving care to is asking the same question over and over, they'll ask something and then you'll give them the answer. And then five minutes later, they'll ask the same question and you'll give them the same answer. And you encourage us not to be frustrated by that because you there may be something else going on. I'd love for you to say something about that. Yeah. So that's a little vignette about Leo and his sister in inner city Cleveland. And I had gone to their home and Leo had been a boxer, uh, a lightweight boxer. And, uh, now he was in his late 80s, and he was quite severely, deeply forgetful. And um, he just kept asking uh, his sister, who was his caregiver, um, these questions about uh, what he was doing 20 years ago and who was this. And, and she would answer it as best she could. Her name was May. And then a few minutes would pass by, and he would ask exactly the same question. And she would respond peacefully. and. Um, with tranquility and kindness and warmth of heart. And she would do this for literally an hour or two. And then, uh, you know, finally he might stop asking. But you have to have that level of, of patience because that is really what love is. You know, uh, there's a passage I like, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even deep forgetfulness. And sometimes we think, well, it's hard to love your enemy, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and it is. But, it's, but you also got to realize that people who are deeply forgetful, we need to love them too and include them. Possibly we don't know what kind of comfort that gives him that repetition might be. Right. Absolutely. And, and he has no insight into the fact that he's asking this question repetitively, right? He has, that's not something of his awareness. So why, why be uh, abrasive about it? Right, exactly. And this is kind of offering comfort uh, and dignity to to the person, which reminds me, all right, the money spent, let's talk about money spent on research of preventing Alzheimer's or diminishing the effects of Alzheimer's, a lot of pharmaceutical research going on. And you you point out that we may need to shift our funding, so to speak. Uh, I'd love for you to speak about that and help us understand your thinking. Well, I'm a true believer in that statement. You know, um, there are no great drugs out there, not even good drugs out there, for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. There are some things that can be prescribed, but on a scale of one to 10, uh, if say insulin is a good drug for diabetes, and it's pretty good, it might be a 9.5, it ain't perfect. But uh, what we have uh, 
for Alzheimer's is probably a one or even a less than one. Now, if you do something like music in memory, you know, if you provide people with um, an iPod and then they can play music that they relate to in their life journey, my goodness, you know, there's a wonderful website from my neighbor here down the road, uh, Dan Cohen, musicandmemory.org. You see these wonderful images of people who have really been kind of quiet and far removed, but you give them that music that they connect with and they'll get somatic, they'll start moving, they'll start singing. There, there's, a, there's a wonderful memory disorder center in Brooklyn that I used to be on the board of, and they use Alzheimer's poets. They have people who, you'll bring in 20 or 30 people with their caregivers, they'll sit around a big room in these comfortable chairs, and they're not conversing at all, but you get someone who with energy and, and vibe, you know, like a kind of Robert Bly, uh, you know, uh, who reads something that they identify with, like the road less traveled, you know, believe it or not, three quarters, even 80%, 90% of them will chime in at least for a line or two, and they'll start getting somatic. And then after it's over, uh, a certain percentage of them will actually, for at least a brief period of time, be able to converse. This is great for them. The cynics say it doesn't matter because they are not going to stay in that sort of modality, but actually they're better over the course of the day. They don't have to use so many medications for aggression and other behavioral difficulties. It cuts it down by about 50%. And also their caregivers are inspired because now they say, you know what? They're not gone. They're not a husk. They're just hidden. They're opaque, but they're there. And that's a beautiful thing. That's wonderful. So like uh, to to really maybe put more funding into this kind of music yes. therapy or art or or even uh, comfort dogs. Uh, oh, yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah, the dogs. So I helped invent that movement in, in Scotland. I was on the board of Alzheimer's and Sterling. And we had the idea, you know, why shouldn't people with dementia have well-trained dogs, not you know, not big dogs that are going to pull them all over, but just well-trained, medium-sized Labradors because they're so easy to get along with. So now across Scotland and in many parts of England and Wales, they have uh, dementia dogs. In Australia, everybody pretty much gets a dementia dog. Now, if you have your own nice, comfortable dog, you can keep it, but they actually encourage it. We went for a walk. I was down in Sydney uh, at a conference there were about 50 people with their dementia dogs, and the dementia dogs all wore vests that have, uh, you know, forget-me-not purple. <laughs> and we went down the main drag of Sydney next to the uh, hospital in South Wales. And uh, these people were so delighted. They were so, and their dogs don't give a hoot if they're forgetful or not. You know, I mean, the dog's always there, always joyful, right? So they were so happy doing this. And a cab driver pulls up right next to me, and he said, hey, Dogs are for blind people. What's this? So I said, well, well, not necessarily. But we, you know, a, a dog can do, do a lot. And respite, we need to support respite care. Yes. So important. Yes. I mean, these people who are there 24-7, many of them are are, are not professional caregivers, but, but family members and friends. And there is no uh, funding to help them have, like, take a break, for, you know. Well, it's sad. You know, um, yeah. we um, we will spend any amount of money in America 
I've worked in hospitals for, you know, 40 years uh, to resuscitate somebody who really is more or less gone uh, in the intensive care unit or whatever. But we do very little for long-term care. And so people in America have to spend down into relative poverty, maybe 15,000 bucks before they can qualify uh, for any kind of state aid. That's a big problem. Let's, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, P-O-S-T, and he's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Post, and we're talking about how we're willing to spend money on resuscitation uh, of people and yet not really fund uh, this um, kind of care that a growing population has need of. So in Canada, Justine, they have in every province, I'm not going to idealize Canada, but they have a good Samaritan program in every single province. And they actually cover long-term care and hospice care for deeply forgetful people completely. It doesn't send families into poverty. Um, here in the United States, we don't quite get that. And it's a huge difficulty. And it makes some people um, want to go off and avail themselves of assisted suicide in Sweden or the Netherlands or even in Quebec now because they don't want to burden their families. I don't think that's fair to them. I think they only have one life to live if they've had a reasonably decent uh, quality of life and they want to continue on. We shouldn't make that into a formula for gross impoverishment. Well said, I think. All right, assisted suicide. Let's go into that for a little bit. And let's talk about continued treatment. Let's say someone has declined significantly. They're, they're in significant cognitive decline. They maybe have diabetes or heart disease, or maybe they're on dialysis, uh, or they have cancer. So what would you say about feeding tubes, and continued treatment. Tell us about that. Well, all the studies we have of older adults who are cognitively intact is that should they become deeply forgetful, they don't want to continue these treatments. So uh, they do not want to continue dialysis. And by the way, if they're severely forgetful, they don't have any insight into what that butterfly needle is that's coming into that graft on their forearm. So for them, subjectively, it's probably something on the range of torture to assault, right? So you have to look at it. This is your question, again, from their perspective. Even 
taking care of diabetes. If they have chronic cardiac difficulties, they may be wearing very complicated paraphernalia. It's very difficult. So why why should we go ahead with that? Why should we, in fact, um, treat them aggressively for cancer? I this is not to disrespect their lives, but to say, look, you know, if someone uh, is in this state and they cannot understand what's going on around them, um, you might as well give them the benefit of the doubt and entrust them to nature. That's what I believe. And the book argues that pretty strongly. In that so far, you encourage people to actually document what is called a living will and someone they trust with the power of attorney. And and we could do this at any age. And to know we can change it at any time. So it's not set in cement. So talk about living wills. Well, you know, entrustment is really the way to go. So I like the idea of the durable power of attorney for healthcare, because a living will is a hard thing to manage. You can't anticipate everything that could possibly happen to you under these conditions. But, you know, if you have deep forgetfulness, you're already connecting in a very enduring way with somebody who's there as your caregiver, who knows your values, who's kind of looking at life through your eyes. And so with the durable power of attorney, you're saying, you know, I trust this person to make decisions for me. You don't have to try to anticipate everything because you can't. So I love those uh, those documents, and I, I'm a champion for them. Uh, and that, by the way, in some of them, uh, you know, you, you can indicate that you don't want artificial nutrition and hydration. And that's a whole other topic, but I've written a lot of things about that. I don't believe in it. Let's, uh, let's go into that. Please, please tell us more about what you... Well, your experience. My grandmother, Grandma Post, I go back to Grandma Post, you know, uh, assisted oral feeding. Now, that was uh, in the 1970s. They didn't have any feeding tubes for people. They could put something down someone's throat, but it would be uncomfortable. It would become infected. It was only in 1979 that two surgeons at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital at Case Western University Hospitals invented the feeding peg, a way to basically go in through the tummy, and it wasn't so invasive. But they did that for kids with blockages of their esophagus and feeding areas, and that made sense. It wasn't until 1985 that a feeding peg was introduced into a nursing home. And Americans who kind of go for the latest technology, they, they thought that was a great idea. It also was a moneymaker for the nursing homes because they got more reimbursement for this kind of complex care than they did for ordinary nursing care. They fired most of the people who knew how to do assisted oral feeding. There is a bit of an art to it. And uh, it was really very unfortunate. Actually, the people who get the feeding pigs don't live any longer. They live less uh, than the ones who are giving assisted uh, oral feeding, because when they have that tube, uh, you know, first of all, they they don't know what it is. They have no insight, so it's sticking out from their belly, and they'll pull it out, and then it has to be replaced. So they'll get tied down physically, and then they're sitting in their urine, and they're getting skin infections, and they're dying of infections, or they're um, they're having uh, uh, aspiration pneumonia. 
because that stuff they float in through those tubes is not normal food. It's not the applesauce and so forth that I did with my grandmother. So they'll die of pneumonia. So it's not a, it's, there's, there's no great benefit to this. And it, it also deprives them of all the stimulation that they get from a, you know, a decent uh, tasting bit of food. Uh, and, you know, when you get really old, small gratifications count yeah. big time. A little applesauce on the tongue is big time, huh? You know, it can, let's say you have somebody, a loved one in a care facility, and they're suggesting doing a peg beating tube. Uh, is there a way that you can say, no, we will not allow this? Yes, you can. The durable power of attorney in almost all states allows you to actually check a box. It doesn't give you lots of choices between A, B, and C because you're entrusting yourself. But even on those documents, you can check a box that says, no, I do not want artificial nutrition and hydration. And a lot of people check that box. It's hard for the adult children, though, Justine, because they're not looking at life. And there's a lot of, a lot of literature around this. The, you know, the, the spouse might be looking at life sort of, you know, been there, done that, they're more retrospective. But with attachment, and, you know, I've been calling mom whenever I want to for the last umphony of years, they don't want to let go. And so sometimes they'll wish for more aggressive treatment than uh, than is appropriate. So I became very well known in Cleveland for many years, you know, talking thoughtfully and and compassionately with adult children and saying, you know, I realize your instincts here, but it's probably not a good idea to go with a feeding pig. And I convinced a lot of them. In fact, there was a front cover article on the Wall Street Journal about what I was doing there, and I was very happy with it. Well, if one has the power of attorney and says no feeding pig, what about a nursing facility that has already fired these people that are capable of giving nourishment by the mouth? Well, so that was a huge problem. And in the late 1990s, when there was some kickback against the pegs, nursing homes again began to hire people who would just be doing assisted oral feeding. But, you know, family members, someone's in a nursing home doesn't mean you're not with them. It's just a geographical relocation. Mm -hmm. You need some professional help, but you can go in there on the way to work or on the way home from work, uh, and you can do assisted oral feeding. And it's actually very, very rewarding. You can get a little sloppy, you know. But, but <laughs> yeah. it, like actually, feeding a baby, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 actually okay. And uh, people get a lot out of it. So I, um, I, I think we're moving back in that direction. In Canada, they've never used a feeding pig. Never used it. They, it's, 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 it's not something they do in their Good Samaritan uh, structures. It's not in their hospices. By the way, hospices generally don't want to use a feeding peg at all. It's against their philosophy. Well, all right. Let's talk about hospice care and the state of it here in the U.S. Um, where does it stand? Where do you stand with hospice care? And and how's that? How's that progressing these days? Pretty well. You know, I strongly support hospice care. For anybody who gets into the very advanced phase of deep forgetfulness, 
hospice is a good place to be. Uh, there is a hospice benefit for individuals uh, with dementia. Uh, it's a six-month benefit, but then it can be repeated another six months or even another six months. So there's plenty of time. It is hard to say, well, you know, an individual is going to die in six months. Uh, it's not like pancreatic cancer or ALS, where you can make that judgment pretty clearly. So there's going to be some uh, judgment calls going on. But people who have uh, deep forgetfulness, they do very well in hospice. And I think that's what we should be doing. And that's where we should be putting our money. Right. I totally agree. We've done other programs on this. And and it's kind of a palliative care situation. As you say, it it doesn't mean you go into hospice. It means, okay, you're going to die. That's no. why we're doing this. Because as you say, you can re-up it and re-up it as need be. And it has a lot of support uh, available in, in so many ways. I just want to go back to how we communicate with these people who are cognitively um, challenged, let's say. And part of it is our need to control things. And you're saying that we need to release that need for control and and accept the um, reality of this cognitive decline. Uh, Any advice there? Well, language is important, and there are whole books written about the art of communication with people who are deeply forgetful. By the way, I recommend that every caregiver, at least once a day, just sit down and sing with their loved one. Singing is awesome. It brings people together. It brings them out of their forgetfulness sometimes, you know, and it's very surprisingly effective. So singing is good. That's a way of communicating, but also how you use language. So never an open-ended question, right? So never, never, you know, what would you like for breakfast? You say, would you like an omelet or Rice Krispies? And so you're constantly using language to cue the individual and bring them into it. Right, exactly. Okay, we'll talk more about that too in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Stephen Post, and he's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, P-O-S-T, 
and he's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. And we're talking about languaging, and I know that there's something that you talk about, about yesing rather than knowing, you know, in yes, Y-E-S, instead of N-O. So this is about languaging and how we speak to our loved ones. Yeah, my motto for any caregiver is this, never a no without a yes. Because people who are deeply forgetful are losing certain freedoms inevitably. It could be the freedom to drive, but it's never, no, you can't drive anymore. It's, you know, you really need to stop driving because you're endangering other people. And if they can understand that, they typically respond pretty positively. But then you say, and guess what? We're going to make every effort to get you where you want to go. And that works miracles. So never never a no without a yes. If people would just remember that rule, they would do fine. So many people here in America are more afraid of getting Alzheimer's than they are of dying. That's like huge fear in our consciousness. And you had asked this question of someone, and and I think they responded. They said, well, if I knew that there was someone who understood this uh, disease, this decline, and that person was my caretaker, I'd feel better about it. Any comment on that? Yeah, that's a very, very important point. when I was a grad student at the U of Chicago, I, I had two mentors. They were both psychiatrists, and they both had diagnoses of probable Alzheimer's disease. One of them had a wonderful family, lots of support, and he trusted them. So he lived about another 10 years. He did spend time in a nursing home, but people would visit him, and he did pretty well. Another one had no family at all, and uh, he just thought, you know, I can't. I can't trust the system. I'm probably going to die with a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural. So sadly enough, I knew him well, he took those 40 secondals and put a plastic bag over his head. And the next day I read about him in the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, and so that's a real issue. I talk about in the book, A Street Clown in San Francisco, who had no no one to look after him. And he done performances on the steps of the library for years and years and years. And here he is. Um, and he, he, he actually didn't have a lot of money, but he bought an airplane ticket and he went to Switzerland to Dignitas and he was um, euthanized, if you will. And I don't judge him for that. I mean, I'm not in favor of it. I don't advocate it. But look, I mean, who could he rely on? And I think that's something we have to think about. So there's a big movement going on now um, focusing with uh, live alone. It's not good language, but people who really live alone, what can we do for them when they don't have someone they can truly entrust? Absolutely. I have that. I live alone now. I don't have family near me. I have some colleagues and some friends that I've known for a long time. That's a concern. I mean, I have a legitimate concern. Who would I 
what is a power of attorney? Because like, I want that to be someone who's much younger than I am, who will survive me. I mean, I could turn it over to a good friend, but they they may not live for it, you know, to be able to assist me. So there are all these questions now. Um, I, I'd like to know more about the live alone uh, uh, movement for my own edification, Stephen. Well, I will. I will send you an email about this. But we're right. We're we're developing some position papers and some policies around this that make it a lot easier uh, for individuals who are living alone uh, to know that they can entrust themselves to individuals who really very preemptively work with them. But it's mm-hmm. got to be a, a significant process. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, this is a this is a dilemma because a lot of people uh, don't have. Uh, shall we say, nuclear families at this point in time. The culture has changed a lot, not to be judgmental about it in the least, but uh, they'd rather, uh, while they still have the capacity and uh, and, and, and can do something that they, they feel is reliable, they'd rather go to uh, uh, one of these countries um, that uh, that allows this to happen. Because we don't do it, you know, in the North. It, I'm, I'm a Reed College guy, Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Oregon, Washington. These states allow assisted suicide, but only if two doctors independently can judge that you're going to die within six months. Maybe they'll extend it a little bit. That means it's designed for people with liver cancer, with pancreas, you know, that kind of thing. But it, they, it's not. It, but if, if if you have dementia, you long ago lost your capacity to operationalize your plans. And and so by the time two doctors could say, well, you're likely to die in six months. There's no way you can engage in assisted suicide. And so it's actually discriminatory. Again, I'm not advocating it. I'm really yes, I know. these people, but I've never judged. And in the book, I actually talk about my being present in a few homes along Lake Erie, along the, sheer, the shores of Lake Erie, with some very thoughtful individuals who decided, you know, um, they get together with their adult children, no grandchildren, thank heavens. You know, I insisted on that. but I, And I just was there to be a pastoral presence. I would, you know, say a prayer for them or whatever. And uh, they would be by the fireplace. They'd be playing a little Johann Sebastian Bach. And someone would bring in the chocolate milkshake with the sequinols in it. And they'd give everybody a hug and they'd swallow that down. And then 20 minutes, half an hour, they're peacefully at rest. It wasn't mm-hmm. brutal. It wasn't difficult, and it's actually quite uh, uh, quite serene. I would have to say, mm-hmm. especially if you've got a nice view in the picture window <laughs> of the of the waves of Lake Erie. Well, what you advocate most most of all is treating people with this kind of uh, cognitive decline or challenge um, with dignity. So I'd love for you to speak about that all people, no matter what their cognitive ability, should be afforded dignity. So say anything about that. So dignity to me means to hold a person in grace. And I tell the story in the book about a geriatric psychiatric hospital in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And I went there with Joe Foley, to whom the book is dedicated, a great neurologist. We went into this unit where they had a lot of people with Down syndrome 
And when people have Down syndrome, by the time they hit 40, 45, they very typically have, on top of that, Alzheimer's disease. And so now they're seeing development in reverse, and it's quite challenging. There were wonderful caregivers there, and they turned out to be Hindus. They had a little community of Hindus there in the middle of Ohio. These were nursing aides, assistants, and a few doctors and nurses. And so Joe and I took them to, to uh, some of them to a pizza restaurant in Gambier, Ohio, where Kenyon College is, and it's the only restaurant there. And we just asked them, so you care so deeply and so meticulously and with such calmness, your very presence is clearly soothing to these individuals, and they can be sensitive. People who are deeply forgetful can be very emotionally sensitive. So we asked them, why, why do you do that? What motivates you? Is it a calling? And you know what they said? Here's the word that you, you know well. They said, namaste, which means I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. So they believed that despite all of this neurological decline, Every individual is still a point of light, a point of light to be very Ayurvedic about it. And, and, and when I was in India, at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies, um, I gave this talk about how we in the West, we shouldn't uh, disrespect people because they are more uh, significantly forgetful than others on, in general, but we should recognize they have consciousness. They have consciousness. And I gave this talk about that. And lo and behold, um, uh, Bangalore is a really interesting place. The Ho His Holiness shows up there a lot. And he came in there and, and he said, yeah, there's no reason why we should respect someone less because their memory is compromised. They can be very creative. They can enjoy that dog. They can love those leaves in the fall. They can do like de Kooning did, 13 and a half years of artwork, which was actually, in my view, better than his earlier stuff, because his earlier stuff was so rough and tough. I don't do nothing for nothing, getting in fistfights in front of the Cafe Wa on Bleecker Street. But he gets demented. And you know what? He begins to look like Georgia O'Keeffe. It's like his kindness, his generosity was freed up, disinhibited from all these negative uh, uh, myths of our modern, individualistic, isolated, difficult world. Ah. Uh. Wow, what a riff. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions today. You've opened our eyes and our, our ears and our hearts to uh this wave, that wave that is that we are experiencing and how we can do it better. Thank you so much for all of your work. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. We've been discussing those um, medical and ethical issues um, of those who might be cognitively in decline. Uh, so uh, if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, stephengpost.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3768. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.